0: W media.
1: Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk.
0: And it's Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine again this week as the world holds its breath over a possible Russian invasion of that beleaguered former Soviet Republic. I'll have more on that in a bit with former CIA Russia hand, John Seifer. But first, Jean.
1: Jeff, I don't know if you watch Saturday Night Live, but last weekend the cold open was all about Russian misinformation and Ukraine. Take
0: a look at these posts that are circulating on Ukrainian Facebook. Ukrainian border encroaching on Russian troops.
2: Russian forces surrounding Ukraine just to give it big hug. Ukrainian president horny for drama wants war slap me harder dandy.
0: I'm going to break my new year's resolution and say it. malarkey. <laughs>
1: Unfortunately, Russia's exploits with disinformation are no laughing matter. We are going to talk about how Vladimir Putin and his agents are trying to influence the conversation about Ukraine later in the podcast with Brian Murphy of Logically.
0: By movie aficionados will, of course, recognize this as the theme music to the Cold War classic, The Hunt for Red October. And it does feel more than a bit Cold War-ish today, doesn't it, as Russian troops, tanks, and weaponry mass on Ukraine's borders? The CIA, of course, formed the cutting edge for the U.S. against the Soviet Union until its demise in 1991, and has carried the battle again against Russia under an aggressive Vladimir Putin. So I called up John Seifer, who once ran CIA operations against the Russians to talk about the spy agency's options for dealing with the Kremlin today. John Seifer, welcome to Spy Talk. It's just great to have you here. Let me take you back a few months or maybe a little bit more to when Vladimir Putin started his buildup. You're on seventh floor of CIA headquarters in Langley. What are you thinking? What's the mood? And what are you recommending?
2: Well, if you're if you're talking about his first buildup last spring, or if you're talking about the one that's led to this threat of an invasion, uh, probably when they fir- both of those first started, uh, my my advice would be he's doing it again. This is this is classic Vladimir Putin pattern of behavior. What he does is he he creates a full crisis, and and then hopes to get some sort of concessions or have people come to him. You know, it's sort of a slightly more sophisticated version of what what Kim does in North Korea, you know, when he's not doesn't seem to be getting paid attention to he shoots us several missiles off or something. But Mm -hmm. in Vladimir Putin, you know, in the last, you know, 10 years or so, he's he's tried to, you know, he escalates, he creates some sort of crisis, he has us sort of come to him. And what's happened in the past is we've tended to accommodate him or give him an off ramp or, or, you know, move to him in some set of space so that you know maybe he'll change maybe he'll come around well mm-hmm. but by, by 2021 2022 we know who vladimir putin is we know he never comes around he's not going to change and so my advice would be with this new one is you're never going to accommodate him he's never going to be satisfied you need to start thinking hard about deterring him and deterring him means there has to be threats that he takes seriously
0: okay let's take it back around the circle to uh seventh floor at langley Uh, You can't say, let's go out and recruit some more agents tomorrow. (laughs) I mean, that's not the way intelligence and espionage works. Uh, That's a long game of spotting and recruiting and managing a spy. Uh, So, What do you think the the tools are uh, for uh, intelligence agencies? Obviously, we're going to step up satellite coverage. Uh, NSA is going to uh, step up uh, listening to uh, Russian communications and so on. But uh, what what do you think uh, the discussion was like uh, at CIA when these when the first buildup began and then the second one?
2: Well, let me just step back to talk about your, your first point. It's an excellent point. Um. You know, one large part of the agency is the human collection part of the agency. And, you know, as you know very well, that's a very fragile ecosystem that, you know, we oftentimes take years and years to find sources and develop them into certain places where they can give us access to things we can't get any other way. We can't get through the satellites. We can't get through radio listening. We can't get through diplomatic means or any other. And sometimes you have those sources and, you know, they might last for a while. And if they go away, you may never get them in that place again. And Russia's especially tough because the Russians are, you know, Vladimir Putin's a KGB officer. They have a massive, massive counterintelligence and intelligence infrastructure. They're very focused on playing games and trying to stop Westerners learning what they're up to. It's sort of a legacy of their Czechist and Soviet past, KGB past. Um, They're all over our diplomats and others and intelligence officers in Moscow, following them everywhere. So Moscow is especially hard place to get human intelligence. And when we do, we're really lucky. And if we start to lose that, we're we're in in trouble. And so, you know, I think the Trump and Trump times there was, you know, reportedly, I don't know because I'm out of the agency now and wouldn't know. But there was some talk about some, some sources in the Kremlin that had to actually flee because of the way Trump was speaking and, and and putting them at risk. So we might find ourselves in a really tough position here that we don't really have the kind of eyes and ears that we might want to have in the Kremlin. Mm-hmm. So what would we do? I think we would do, you know, what we do in the past is try to work with our with our analysts, because the analysts are pulling in information from everywhere, from the NSA and from satellites and from diplomats and business travelers. And politicians and others to try to put together a pattern. And I think what they would find is the pattern I mentioned to you earlier. Vladimir Putin has been consistent. He's consistently been at war with the West. He's consistently been in a political war against the United States. He's consistently had a zero-sum view where anything that hurts the United States is good for him. And so I think they would understand that in this, in this case, you know, he's he's trying, you know, we're not going to be able to appease him. We can only find a way to, to make it clear that the pain he will suffer if he takes the actions he claims he's going to take might deter him from action.
0: It would be great to learn somewhere down the road that we had a top spy inside the Kremlin, inside Putin's circle. Not likely uh, at this point. Uh, we uh, Some of the sources, like you say, reportedly uh, uh, that we had uh, fled uh, Russia. Um, So, uh, anyway, it would be great if we had someone stealing the memos off Putin's desk, but uh, not likely. But uh, one of the priorities of U.S. intelligence as a whole, of course, not just CIA, is to provide early warning of an attack. So you would expect that uh, there'd be a priority put out. A bulletin would be going out to all CIA, relevant CIA stations to... uh, to bear down on Russia's military infrastructure uh, to get to find hints of any attack that's coming. Am I, am I right about that?
2: Oh, you're absolutely right. And, and our, our military intelligence infrastructure and CIA and NSA are quite good at what they do and they've been doing it for a long time. You know, as you well know too, nowadays, open source reporting is, is much more, vibrant and and more extensive than it ever was in the past you see the things that like bellingcat and these others can report by putting together you know inputs from big data and looking at you know facebook feeds and people's pictures and 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 using data like we've seen people reporting openly about you know blood supplies moving to the front and there's been lots of photos of you know Literally just citizens taking pictures of Russian trains moving to the front and posting them and then finding their way into into, journalism and others. So, you know, the key for for our intelligence service is not just to only look at their own information, but to pull it all together and try to see what's happening. And what's especially hard, I mentioned earlier that collecting intelligence information is hard in Moscow, but what's especially hard here is it has to do with one man, Vladimir Putin. You know, Even if we had sources in their foreign ministry and around the Kremlin, that doesn't mean that we're in Vladimir Putin's brain. And at the end of the day, in a dictatorial system, he's the one that's going to decide. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to predict.
0: Mm-hmm. Feels like September 1939 all over again. Yeah. Uh, speaking of tracking uh, Russian military movements, we have reports now that he's pulling back some of these units. What do you make of that?
2: Well, you know... I spent a lot of time looking at sort of the history of, of Russian intelligence operations. And again, Putin is a is a Czechist, which means, you know, he's, he takes the legacy of the Bolshevik Cheka, which is the original, you know, special services, secret services of the of the Soviet regime that they celebrate every December. Um, he was the head of the FSB, the massive internal security service of Russia, and a career KGB officer. The KGB has always been involved in what would they call active measures, sort of a version of what we call covert action, where they where they're trying to send signals or trying to send false signals and use disinformation and propaganda and agitation and all these other kind of things. And so um, I'm hoping that our analysts are, are clever enough to see which things might be, you know, means of trying to signal or throwing disinformation into the into the atmosphere to see how how it's picked up. Um, so it's really hard to say, you know, you see one piece of information and then draw conclusions from it when you deal with the Russians, because they're always playing this sort of double game.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, one of those movements may be, of course, what we've been expecting for some time now is uh, Russian aggression onto uh, Ukrainian territory or more of Ukrainian territory. Um, uh, over at the Spy Talk newsletter, we've addressed the issue of paramilitary trainers uh, from the West, principally the US, uh, and some from the UK, uh, preparing Ukrainians for guerrilla warfare against the Russians. Uh, um, What's your take on that? What what kind of prospects do you see for that being successful?
2: It depends what you mean by successful. I mean, I think it's necessary. I think working with the Ukrainians to professionalize their military, to professionalize their paramilitary and their intelligence services and their paramilitary services, is very important. Um, if in fact Vladimir Putin chooses to try to occupy Ukraine, having an insurgency, a guerrilla warfare capability is, is very important to try to bleed, bleed the Kremlin. You know, sort of like what we what happened to us in Afghanistan and other places,
0: or what we did to the Red Army in Afghanistan in the 1980s. No,
2: absolutely true. So I, but but, but you know, when we talk about that as success, that often takes a long time and you know, there's going to be a lot of blood and pain and refugees and and damage and damage to economies and oil flows and all these other, <coughs> excuse me, other things in the meantime. So I I don't count on that being, you know, definitive. I hope it's just another layer of something that Vladimir Putin has to take into consideration. Um, you know, the problem is, I think Vladimir Putin... Ass- assessed us as weak. I think after after pulling out of Afghanistan, he looks at our internal politics after January 6th and other things, he sees that the American political body is not <laughs> cohesive, that there's people actually working against the administration inside. And I think he took these things together to, to think that, hey, you know, now might be a good time, the West is weak. And so we didn't have a lot of tools to push deterrence. But since that time, we've really tried to pull the NATO Team together. There's been military movements. We've talked about putting more American weapons and troops into, in, into Europe, just like your reporting said that we're we're doing more paramilitary training. I think all those things together are part of a effort to deter him from acting, but we're not gonna know, you know, until until we see what until we see what he does. Mm-hmm. I'm of the view that it's incredibly stupid to to invade or to attack Ukraine. I think that's a roll of the dice that. He just doesn't know if he can control. You know, he doesn't know what kind of pushback he'll get from Ukraine. He doesn't know what it means if he's an international pariah and his economy is turned off. He doesn't know, you know how that will affect his, you know, him inside his own country. And I think that's the thing that's most important to him.
0: He's been an international pariah for some time, certainly uh, since he invaded, uh, uh, seized Crimea, um, uh, the attacks on the U.S. electoral system uh, which are continuing, um, other, but we, cyber but we still go and back on. and, but,
2: but we still go back and meet him. He's, there's still these sort of summit meetings and he, he comes to all the various leaders meetings around Europe and all these other kind of things. They still operate fully in the, you know, economic system, even though there's been individual sanctions. I don't think we've turned it on to make him a pariah in the sense that Iran or North Korea is. And, and that's what he might be facing if, if he invades.
0: Mm. We ran a piece, as you know, a couple of days ago, saying that China offers Putin uh, an out uh, against uh, sanctions, uh, if if China so decides to do so. Um, what do you think of that?
2: Yeah, and I think one of the problems for us, you know, trying to deter this time is, we've been signaling this for a long time, we've been threatening, oh, you know, you do more, we're going to up the sanctions. We've talked about pulling Russia out of the swift banking uh, network for years now. So he has had time to work with the Chinese and others to try to find ways to avoid that pain, to be pr- prepare for that type of thing. And, I, and as you've reported, there's been discussions with the Chinese and others, and the Chinese have the economic capability to do that. I tend to think that the sort of vaunted Chinese Russian relationship is less than it appears to the outside. I think, I think Putin fears China. China is, you know, winning the 21st century. China is growing. China needs the international economic order because they're winning because, because they succeed. They're making money off of it. Russia is trying to upend it and turn it all over because they're losing, they're losing the 21st century. So yes, China could help, you know, really Russia just a blip to China. Like they may help, they may cho- not, choose not to. It's a hell of a gamble to, to bet that the Chinese are going to bail you out.
0: Well, we can't punish the Chinese like we uh, have the Russians or may be contemplating to do more if he invades. Um, and China may, may well see this as an opportunity to punish us again, to gang up on us a little bit more. Uh, I bet that's uh, really tempting to uh, Xi Jinping.
2: And you're right. I mean, that's the one thing they have in common is they have a common enemy. And so, you know, that said, China has often been very careful in terms of really provoking and, and pushing and so remains to be seen. I, I hope, you know, I hope we don't have to find out what, <laughs> what, what they might do. I hope hmm. Putin comes to his senses here.
0: Mm, yeah, we all do. Um we're in a tight spot now. It's hard to see him crawling back off that ledge. But let me let me ask you something else. Um is is Russia if if we end up in a kind of a shooting war with the Russians or at least an intelligence war because they've moved to uh seize at least uh, the territory uh east of the Dnieper River. Uh so are they vulnerable as elsewhere in places like Kazakhstan? where we could light a fire and make some trouble for them. Um, we quoted Robert Manning of the Atlanta council the other day saying uh, that Putin may be sitting on powder kegs more than client States. What, what do you think of that? Well, is it's that interesting overblown.
2: Well, I've been sort of pushing this for a while too. You know, one of the things, another pattern of Vladimir Putin's, which dictators tend to do is they need to have a straw man. They need to have somebody to blame for their problems. So, Vladimir Putin has been blaming the United States, the CIA, and the West for interfering in his government for, for his economic troubles uh, for a long time. And he knows that we're not interfering in his government. We're not doing the things that he claims daily that we're doing in, in Russia. But he's a KGB guy. He understands the power of these sort of covert actions and this disinformation and sabotage and all these type of things, subversion, because that's what he does. That's what he. That's how he Uses his government as a weapon, um, but frankly, we could. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm yeah. I was going to say,
0: let's turn the tables. You're a <laughs> yeah. CIA guy. You know all <laughs> these tools too: disinformation, sabotage, espionage, and so on. Uh, and and it's just natural for uh, people and and certainly uh, institutions like CIA and military institutions say, well, let's do something. Let's make some trouble <laughs> for him, right? I mean well, that that you, know, I, you can imagine in, that conversation taking yes, place so. at your old outfit out in Langley.
2: <laughs> yes, I think so. And I, you know, in the past, I think the the U, the US government in the 50s and 60s went to this way too much and it it backfired. But I think this is a weapon that it. Was, it Putin was very unsuccessful.
0: Yeah. Early but, CIA efforts against the Soviet Union were, were oh my notoriously God. Yeah, unsuccessful.
2: That's that's correct.
0: So, so what makes you think that if we did it again to light some fires inside Russia or uh, Russia's client states that we, we'd have more success. Uh,
2: Because I don't think Russia is nearly as powerful as the Soviet union is. I think Vladimir Mm -hmm. Putin understands that, you know, he's in a precarious situation. It's, you know, he's essentially been stealing from his people and there's a small group of oligarchs and cronies around him that have been as well. And so they have to worry, you know, about, to a certain extent, the population, you know, Seeing what's happening in these other countries and maybe rising up. I mean, it's something that he's feared for a long time. He's feared these color revolutions. It's one of the reasons he wants to go into Ukraine because he sees, you know, a successful Ukraine as a threat, as a as a as a model to perhaps his own people. Same with going into Kazakhstan. So, you know, I can imagine going to Vladimir Putin and saying, "Listen, you know, we haven't been playing these covert games. But if you want us to fund every type of opposition to you around the world," If you want us to be trying to undercut your government from the inside, if you want us to be fomenting problems in all of these countries around not you know, you claim we're doing all these terrible things in Ukraine, you know, we're not, but we can and we can do it in all the countries around. um, I think it's something he would understand.
0: But but Vladimir Putin has said all along that uh, or accused the US all along of sparking these color revolutions that we uh, covertly aided them, that they were a tool of the CIA. Has he got a point?
2: Uh, but I think that's also part of, you know, lying to his population to uh, uh, to try to protect himself. He knows, I mean, he's got a worldwide intelligence apparatus. He's got sources around the world. We know, for example, how successful he was messing with our elections in 2016, and how he has such a good sense of American politics that he can find our weaknesses, exploit them and amplify them to his benefit. So I think he has a good understanding of what the West is doing, what the West can do to him. And he understands that we haven't been fomenting those things. We publicly, our public diplomacy has supported, you know, Georgian independence and, and things in Ukraine and these other kind of things. And certainly he dislikes that. So I understand that. But the notion that we're doing some sort of covert activity to, to support these countries against Russia, I, I, I believe he understands that that's not true.
0: Or uh, we, that we may not have really uh, put the uh, pedal to the metal. <laughs> yes, yeah, we, so we
2: could. Like again, we could.
0: Hmm. Um, what more could Putin do to hurt us domestically? He was pretty successful in 2016. Um, been a, he's created a. He's helped create chaos here. Uh, is there more that he could do?
2: Yes, I think there is. I mean, you know much of what we're seeing now is a match to dry tinder it's it's not too hard in the united states to see what people are attacking each other over whether it has to do with issues related to trump whether it has issues related to race whether it has any sort of political issues all he has to do is you know have his people find things that are upsetting and, and creating passion and chaos in the in the in tribal chaos in the political system and, and exploit it and so I don't think that's too hard. I think he continue to do that. Cyber attacks are also very proficient and very good. Obviously, as, as we know, he could ramp that up. But at the end of the day, these things can come back to him, too. We haven't attacked him with you know serious mm-hmm. cyber attacks. And, and, and we, we could, could do so. Yeah, uh,
0: I, I'm from what I know about our cyber cyber capabilities, we could turn out the lights in Moscow, um, make them make them flicker a little bit, send <laughs> him a message. Turn off well, one I, of his um, refineries.
2: Well, I think uh, the uh, the Bush administration and the Obama administration continued to want, never want to really push back hard against Putin because they thought he would come around. They thought either it must be a misunderstanding and partly our problem or that we could reset and, and Vladimir Putin would understand the benefit of, of that. You know, again, now we've had 20 years of him. We understand that he sees the West as an enemy. He wants to set himself up as the, you know, the the opposite of 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 the west and so those things don't work we get that and so now is the time to 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 actually look to create that kind of pain rather than um you know hold back hoping that he's going to change because he's not going to change
0: well a tinderbox of this and we can only hope that the u.s and nato and the russians find a way to step back off the ledge and solve this problem peacefully to to everyone's satisfaction but it looks kind of grim as we it talk. does it does
2: look grim but we have to remind ourselves too that this is completely manufactured crisis the things that he's claiming that are a problem have been this exact same issues for the last 25 years like ukraine has, has been an independent country for 30 some years ukraine is not anywhere closer to joining nato than they were five ten years ago um there's nothing new in terms of military push towards his borders like he claims in fact the u.s was pulling out of europe you know in all ways to include our tanks and everything else up until 2014 when he invaded ukraine and, and took crimea and even since then we've only put in sort of brigade size groups to, to work in europe and so you know the, the things that he's claiming are problems have been the same issue for 30 years it's almost like he believes that the so that the united states and the west humiliated the soviet union humiliated russia after the soviet union fell and because of our weakness now it's his turn to humiliate us and so you know we we just can't put up with that we got to push back
0: john cypher thanks so much for being with us today let's keep our fingers crossed that uh, there's a peaceful resolution here thank you
1: thank you appreciate it
0: That's former senior CIA operations officer, John Seifer. Gene?
1: You know, Jeff, we heard John Seifer talk about how Vladimir Putin uses disinformation as a tool. We're going to have more on that in just a moment. A reminder to subscribe to our podcast and also subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve. Jeff, you're at Spy Talker. We'll be back in just a moment. War isn't just about moving troops and physical assets. It has always had a psychological component. And in this social media age, it has become easier to play mind games. Russia and its intelligence operatives are expert. We saw them sow myths and disinformation during the 2016 U.S. election, for instance. Now they are planting doubts and encouraging division over Ukraine. We talked to Brian Murphy, a former FBI and DHS official who is now Vice President of Strategic Operations for Logically. He says Russia's efforts to manipulate the Ukraine situation through social media are extensive.
3: It's definitely different and it's definitely intense.
1: Where are they targeting it? I presume Ukraine first and foremost. What are you seeing in that space?
3: So I think they're targeting largely the Russian population and the ethnic Russians living in Ukraine, trying to build uh, a base or a a justification for war or intervention. Uh, That's their, I think, their
1: primary objective. Are they trying to change minds of other Ukrainians?
3: I'm sure they are. I'm sure they're hoping to change the minds of, let's say, the rest of Ukrainians and non-ethnic Russians. Um, But It's from what we've seen that those minds are probably
1: made up, and I don't think that's the primary objective. Are they trying to undermine faith in the government?
3: They're always doing that. Um, I think they they come at that uh, a number of ways, such as cyber attacks, uh, beyond the misinformation space, Uh, but absolutely, that would be part of their business process.
1: So let's talk about where else they're doing this. Are you seeing Russian entities trying to influence the social media conversation and opinion elsewhere in Europe?
3: Yeah. So I think, again, the primary target is that Russian-speaking audience to gain that base of support. But the secondary uh, aspect of this particular campaign is to bring out things to, for example, the, one of their themes is neo-Nazism within Ukraine to undermine the will of largely Western Europe and the United States. Um, to stand behind Ukraine as a a partner that we'd want to support. They're trying to show the the underside of, um, you know, in their minds, of uh, the Ukrainian culture and its people.
1: So explain. Can you give me an example of what they'd be highlighting?
3: There are a couple of key figures in the Ukrainian political, historical, and cultural um, worldview that are founding figures and important to the current Ukraine identity. Um, some of those people are former members of the Nazi party during World War II. And so they are celebrated in, at some level within Ukraine as historically important figures for Ukraine. And at the same time, they were indeed Nazis. So that's how the Russians try to amplify and show
1: uh, what, what the other side of Ukraine is, if you will. How are the Europeans reacting, do you know, to the, to the disinformation?
3: I think that individuals like yourself in the press and let's say the State Department and other countries have done a great job to identify what these strands are that the Russians are trying to push. It's hard to measure how the European population sees that. But the more we expose these, that's the best uh, defense is good daylight on these types of dis and misinformation campaigns. And of course, people will make their own judgments from there. Uh, Some people will not agree with the, Russian, the Ukrainian past, and that may influence how they think about it now or not, but they'll at least have the facts to know why this is coming around now.
1: What's happening in Russia? Is uh, Russia uh, uh, promoting disinformation to its own population? So
3: the, the Russian mis- and disinformation campaign is always first and foremost centered within Russia. That's where it started centuries ago, and that's really the most important context by which they carry out these campaigns. Domestic population first has always been the target and, and will likely remain the target of the Russian government. So what are they
1: trying to persuade them of in this moment?
3: They there's there's a couple of narratives uh, that they're producing. And the point of that is that this would be a righteous war. It's a defensive war on behalf of on behalf of the Russian government and the Russian ethnic Russians. And it fits in line with what um, Putin and other thought leaders within the Russian establishment, academia, news, et cetera, the idea that these ethnic Russians are part of what they call Rusky mirror or the Russian world
1: and need to be protected no matter what borders they lie within. Is it building support for the war, as far as you can see, or the potential war? I I think that's their attempt.
3: Um, It's... uh, hard for us to measure how effective it is, except to say that uh, the war and the potential war is widely accepted as a positive thing within Russia. So, uh, you know, whether this particular campaign, how much it's uh, been influential, I, I don't think we know, but the, what we do know is that the, the war itself is very popular, well-received within Russia. Those narratives are, are having at some level an effect um, and a part of the Russian strategy.
1: Are you seeing Russian disinformation in the United States? So
3: I think we as consumers of social media are always uh, subject to picking up information um, perpetuated by the Russians. So yeah, we've certainly seen a bleed over as the narratives get laundered within multiple countries, including the United States.
1: So how much are you seeing here? Is it more or less activity than you saw, let's say, around the election?
3: You know, I don't know if we have those answers quite yet because the campaign's still ongoing. And what what I would say, it's certainly present, but we're not at a place where we can necessarily compare and contrast it uh, to um, let's say the elections of either 2020 or 18 or 16.
1: We have seen some mainstream media figures um, repeating some of the Russian line on this conflict. What's your reaction when you see someone, let's say like Tucker Carlson, um, parroting the Russians?
3: Well, I think, you know, it, this, is a, this is right falls into the Russian playbook, right? They will put out uh, their point of view um, in terms of how they uh, articulate their stance on things. And uh, part of that should be news, right? In the sense of like, it's newsworthy. Um, how individual commentators interact with that is kind of the next part of it. And it really depends on, you know, how, I, in my perspective, how objective those reporters are, and, and kind of how they uh, discuss it. A lot of reporting in the U.S. and other countries plays into the. This is a, a catch twenty two. Can play into the Russian narrative, and and uh, we will be unwittingly. Uh, we mean the press would be unwittingly, um, help helping or, facilitating their narrative, but the the weird dynamic here is that there's a responsibility for the press and it may be good for the Russians, but it still may be things that the press has an obligation or or desire to put out. Can you give me an example? So um, any hot button political issue in the United States, they're going to try to amplify it and make it more divisive. Um, You know, one of the examples uh, that I'll go back to is during the summer of 2020, you know, we saw the Russians amplifying narratives about the murder of George Floyd. Um, It doesn't mean that um, their um, you know, right or wrong and how the press covered it uh, in terms of the, the narratives because what the Russians were largely putting out was already existing stories that other U.S. persons were either putting out or factual stories. They wanted to amplify the story. That's their goal in that case. So it's the polarization they, they are in today's world most after. And it's a tricky situation. Um, and I don't think any of us got the full answer on how to respond to that. Uh, I think the press is much further on guard than they were years ago, and and they're very careful about what they're reporting. I'm not saying they weren't careful before. I'm simply saying they're more sensitive to these underhanded disinformation techniques.
1: Are you seeing the Russians use any new tactics or techniques? As an example, for years, there's been worry about the use of deepfakes, doctored audio or video. Are you seeing that or something else that represents a different stage in this whole disinformation fight
3: there's really two parts that i think are a shift um, in their strategy and tactics Um, the first is they have pivoted to uh, much more of these kind of gray news channels which are uh, either directly backed by the russian government or more likely uh i don't know if it's more unlikely i I don't know that answer have a relationship uh, that is either covert or directly known to them and these, these are the smaller outlets uh, that you'll see. Uh, and it's hard to determine what their objectives are and who funds them. Um, that, that is one thing. The second part of it is, uh, they, they certainly are looking to make a place in, on Facebook and Twitter or the, whatever the household name for social media is, but they're more active in um, social media platforms that don't quite um, do policing of their uh, platforms in the way, let's say, some of these bigger corporations uh, do so. They've moved off of a lot of this, uh, the, these kind of Twitters and Facebooks. Again, they're still would hope they get success there and into smaller platforms and gray news sites, so they can launder their narratives and then hope they appear on larger sites.
1: So those smaller outlets and those smaller media channels might be what?
3: Well, I mean, um, for example, uh, we look at Telegram. Um, not saying that for example that the uh i i don't know fully you know how the russians look at telegram but telegram generally does not do a whole lot of uh policing of their of their sites as we see it and we're not talking about the encrypted side of telegram we're talking about when telegram is open to the public um there there are a lot of conspiratorial um you know things on there downright falsehoods uh you know some level of uh uh, Violence speak um, and those are the types of sites the russians are going to gravitate towards in terms of gray news sites there was some really good work done by a number of reporters in the u.s um, uh, fort russ which is i think a well now identified uh, gray news site out in i believe california um, somewhere I, I think it's california those sites tend to take the russian narrative and put it out as if it's their own or launder it uh, through their sites and it can get some traction from there.
1: Who is promulgating the Russian disinformation? Is it the government? Is it their proxies?
3: So in the world of disinformation, where we've moved from is for the most part into paid for services. And there are a number of companies throughout the world uh, that you can find easily on the internet. It's, I, I don't think it's illegal in most countries. And you pay them for a disinformation campaign, and many of these companies are, are low-cost uh, countries. And for a couple thousand, you'll get your disinformation campaign of de jour, and you know that's that's a good starting place for let's say the Russians and others uh, to come in from a covert perspective, and you know hand over money and, and tell these individuals what they want done, and uh, it it happens. So I think those cutouts
1: are key. So we've been concerned, the West, about disinformation coming from Russia and elsewhere for years. Are we getting any better at coping with it, at dealing with it, at at blunting its impact?
3: I think we are in certain areas. um, Where I think, let's say for the United States, we have a long way to go is um, we are not in a place where we have a uh, winning strategy for the long run. And what I mean by that is um, a lot of what we do is is whack a troll and you know, where they pop up somewhere, either the social media companies will push them down, but they reappear somewhere else. And that, that kind of game will continue, um, you know, for a long time, or they'll drop off social media and appear on gray news sites uh, in terms of what they're doing now. So I don't know that we have that strategy, but we are making strides in terms of the social media uh, metadata and, and kind of spying those campaigns. And, and I think from a societal view, not a governmental position, but a societal view, we're talking about it more often, which is good. It, it, it leads to, I think, some
1: awareness. Is disinformation going to be part of any future conflict?
3: I think for the for the foreseeable future, it will absolutely play a, a role in um, that sliding scale that, that countries can deploy. Um, it's not necessarily new, right? Uh, we've seen propaganda as part of a nation's uh, toolkit, um, but the ability to project it into your adversary's backyard or across the world has changed. Um, it's just to scale the scope, and the, the speed um, is just un, unmatched uh, right now. So it's also there's also no cost for the most part for uh, countries laundering these narratives um, at present. So it's a low cost in terms of dollar and cents to build a campaign. It's low cost politically for the most part to launch a campaign. So why wouldn't you?
1: That was Brian Murphy, vice president of strategic operations for Logically, formerly with the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. Jeff?
0: Yeah, it's so troubling. You know, we've seen no end to this Russian meddling in our social sphere, our political sphere. And not only the Russians, of course, but the Chinese, the Iranians, North Koreans are all musking around in our uh, social media. It's gotten to a point where some people are calling for a radio-free America to kind of try to combat this uh disinformation but you know that brings its own problems uh, the u.s government's forbidden to propagandize americans and they get their their word out through the media but somehow it just isn't getting through to the anti-science uh, anti-government crowds that are uh, you know just crippling our responses to covid and in trying to get our uh, political system on an even keel so I don't know what the way forward is, but I think we'll, we'll come back to this issue. We'll address it in a subsequent uh, podcast of how the government and private industry might collaborate together to uh, do a more f- forceful rebuttal to all this disinformation.
1: And listen, media organizations have a part to play, too. As we talked about in the podcast, there are some people on television who are promoting this mis- and disinformation.
0: Oh, yeah. And then there's the Joe Rogans of the world in social media.
1: Yep. Yep. It is a really complex uh, quandary we find ourselves in. That's it for this edition of Spy Talk. Thanks a lot for joining us.
0: Good to have you here for another week. Thanks for tuning in to Spy Talk. And we hope to see you back here next week. Thanks. I'm Jeff Stein.
1: And I'm Gene Meserve. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.